12, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 11. While you're turning there, uh, let me just say I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. Um, I'm particularly thankful this morning for our worship team, and uh, it's a real privilege and delight to have Ben Elliott back on piano. Uh, welcome back, Ben. And uh, his friend Bryn, um, that was beautiful, you guys. Um, hey, so this morning, kind of in, in keeping with that song, the reason why we introduced uh, such an honest and, and vulnerable hymn sort of of lament to not because of how the world is, but because of how God is sometimes. Like, God, why are you acting this way? And why are you answering prayers in a way that's painful and difficult and hard? And, and then we kind of get to that resolution like, oh, he's doing something good that I, I, I could not see through the pain. That prism just kind of blinded me. And uh, and, and, and I need to be open to, by faith, trusting him as a father in heaven loves his son, his daughter. He's caring for us. And that's, that's a great way to, to sing and express what Hebrews verses 4 through 11 uh, tells us is true, like eternally true. Uh, so I would just invite you, if, if you're able, let's stand in honor of God's word. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 11 in Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it disciplines us. And it hems us in behind and before. And it shows us the, the way uh, to follow Jesus as your disciples. Uh, lead us in this discipline, we pray. In his name, amen. Please be seated. Um, so, yeah, we're, if, you, if you're here, I'm, I'm going to make sort of a general assumption that most of us would call ourselves disciples. Uh, and if you're new and you're like, oh, wait a minute, not so fast, uh, you know, I'm, I'm checking Jesus out or I'm asking questions, I'm really glad you're here and we want to help you with those questions. Um, but as Jesus bids us to follow him and we say yes, uh, what we're saying yes to is a life of discipleship. And, and that word ought to be instructive to us because that's where you know, we get the word discipline from. Um, and discipline has sort of two categories that I want to keep in mind as, as, we, as we look at these verses in Hebrews 12. There's not only uh, maybe what we immediately think of, which is the discipline of correction, but there's also the discipline of instruction. Um, God lays out the guardrails and says, don't go this way, don't go this way. Instead, here's the path. And, and that's the discipline of instruction. 
And then we crash through those guardrails, right? And we find ourselves in the weeds. And through the discipline of correction and restoration, God comes after us, not because he's angry and frothing and throwing a temper, but because he loves us and he wants us back on the path and, and he restores us through correction. So I want you to keep those two categories of discipline in mind and that's gonna help us as we, as we look at these verses and, and try to come to grips with what does it mean to receive God's loving discipline? Uh, what does it mean for us to, to be shaped by God's loving discipline? And then, um, you know, just sort of in the spirit of, of this week, how do we grow in genuine thanksgiving? Like really genuinely grateful for God's loving discipline. Um, that might sound like a stretch, right? But bear with me. Let's start with uh, receiving God's loving discipline. And, and, I, and I think what, what these verses are eager like, to show us, like right out of the, out of the gate, um, God's a loving heavenly father. And, and don't... don't uh, don't project our earthly views of, of fatherhood on our heavenly father. Instead, let his heavenly reality be what the, the lens through which we see earthly parenting, right? Um, some of you grew up in wonderful homes with mom and dad who were deeply nurturing, deeply caring, imperfect to be sure. We know you're all in counseling, <laughs> right? We're all in counseling. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that they weren't really good, wholesome, beautiful people uh, doing their best. Um, but that wasn't everybody's experience here. And I know that, and you know that. And um, let's just keep that in mind. Let's not fall prey to that mistake of projecting a dysfunctional, painful, earthly experience of parenting on our Heavenly Father. The gospel helps us reverse that and start to see, he's my true father. And no matter what trauma, no matter what pain, suffering, abuse even I experienced from earthly parents, I don't have to receive that from my, my Heavenly Father. In fact, He can redeem it. He can heal it. He can, he can, he can make me healthier uh, because I've received His love. And so keep that in mind as we go through this. So um, what, we're, what we're learning from these opening verses is that um, Hebrews is going to quote from Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3 um, if you go back to verses 11 and 12 in Proverbs 3, uh, it's a little bit, um, depending on you know, your translation, it reads like this. My son, or my daughter, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, uh, the child in whom he delights, right? Um, our, our father is active and attentive and faithful to discipline us because he loves us. That's what, I, that's what we need to take away from this. Um, when I was a young parent um, and, and Rachel was like two years old, three years old, our oldest, uh, 29 now and married, um, and Kathy and I heard about this conference over at our grandmother church in Charlottesville, Trinity Presbyterian. We're hosting this pastor named uh, Ted Tripp, uh, Paul Tripp's brother, right? And Ted Tripp had just published a book called Shepherding, a Child's Heart, a lot of you have read it. Really, really great, helpful, uh, useful tool for young parents. Um, and so we needed to know what in the world have we gotten ourselves into? How do we parent this, this you know, little child? And, uh, and I wanna just give you, we printed it in your bulletin so you can read along if you want, but this is a great summary of parenthood. He says, let me overview, overview a biblical vision for the parenting task. 
It gives you kind of three things. The parenting task is multifaceted. First, it involves being a kind authority. Second, shepherding your children to understand themselves in God's world. And third, keeping the gospel in clear view so your children can internalize the good news and someday live in mutuality with you as people under God, right? To become brothers and sisters uh, as we relate together to our, our Heavenly Father. Threefold task of parenting, being a kind authority, shepherding your children to understand themselves in God's world, and then keeping the gospel in view at all times, right? Like he, he loves us, he's for, forgiven us, he's redeemed us, etc. Um, now let me just ask you, does that sound like just another bit of good, good parenting advice? Like he just sort of came up with this, hey, I found this to be helpful with my family, just want to give you some tips and tools to maybe, maybe these will work for your family, who knows? No. Uh, th this is a great summary of how God parents us. This is how our Heavenly Father relates to us. And so as earthly parents, we, we want to be image bearers of our Heavenly Father to our own children. If you've got children at home, what do we want them to do? We want, we, we want to be uh, a, a representative of God's kind authority. We want our children to see God's kingdom in our family. Uh, we want our children to understand the gospel as how we relate to God. And so these, these, this is a great way to see how God parents us. And, and so sadly, um, people do tend to assume that God parents us the way that our earthly parents parented us. And this kind of goes back to what I was earlier just sort of making a, a little caution about. Like, our, our parents were, were imperfect. If you had wonderful, beautiful parents that, that never lost their temper and never kind of, you know, dropped the, the ball and had to recover the fumble, then God bless you. But, but the rest of us had earthly parents who, um, they, they didn't do it right all the time. Uh, and we ought not to think that God parents us in the same way. Like, okay, if you break a window or break the vase, you know, the, the earthly parent just kind of flies off the handle, loses their temper, screaming ensues, grounding ensues, you know, spankings ensue, whatever. And the child develops this sort of thinking that the way that I appease the parent and, and reconcile this situation is I need to say I'm sorry and I just need to do better next time. And that's what's going to bring a smile back to my parent's face. And we think that's how God relates to us. We break his law, he gets really mad, really upset. We've got to pay our penance and pay our dues. And, and, and then, you know, if I, if I commit myself to, to new obedience and to just kind of doing better next time, that's going to bring a smile back to God's face. Then he'll be good to me again. That cannot be farther from the truth. That is not the gospel. The gospel tells us that because God is good to us, because he's faithful and attentive, and because he loves us, he is being good to us throughout that discipline process. He is good enough and loving enough to pursue us in that discipline, not losing his temper, but gently you know, um, shaping us and correcting us so that we come back onto that sort of path of, of blessing and goodness. Um, the, the whole point of the atonement is that when Jesus died on the cross, he was absorbing into his body in that act the, the rightful 
anger of God towards sin and injustice and evil and all the things that, that bleed out of us in our worst moments. That Jesus was taking the anger of God and paying the penalty for that. There's no more punishment left. Jesus absorbed it all and completed it all, and it was finished on the cross. The resurrection is the proof that the sentence is paid and it's done. And so we ought not to look at God's correction and discipline as, as some way that where he's He's exacting a pound of flesh for us. It's not punishment, it's restoration, it's correction. He's, he's shaping us and, and he's molding us and, and helping us bear more of the family image. Um, I like how the Apostle John expresses it in 1 John. Chapter 4, verse 18, he says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When, when we get the idea that God's punishing me, I think we're losing sight of the gospel. The punishment was complete on the cross. Is he correcting us? Yes. Is he demanding a pound of flesh from us? No. Is he loving us? Yes. Is he just going off in a fit of rage because we've broken you know, another one of his laws? No, right? So the gospel helps us understand how is the heavenly father loving us through discipline? He's not gonna neglect his kids either. He's going to be faithful, he's going to be loving, he's going to be attentive, and he's going to instruct us, and he's going to correct us. And that tells us that he's not going to be neglectful, and that's the whole point of verses 7 and 8. For, it's for discipline you've got to endure. God's treating us as sons. Um, what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all that participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Do you, do you see how, what's at stake there? If God were just sort of going to, hey, I don't want to be hard. I don't want to be, you know, that, that dad, right, who's going to get in the kid's business and give them instruction and correction. If God were just sort of going to be a, the, the nice dad, the cool dad, um, then he would actually be neglectful. It would be a form of, of abuse. Neglect is a form of abuse. When you um, fail to instruct a three-year-old on, you know, don't touch the chainsaw, that, then that's, a, that's good parenting. The parent who just, well, kids will be kids, lets the kid just rev that sucker up, a three-year-old with a chainsaw, bad things happen. And it's neglect not to say no, 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 right? And to correct that kind of behavior. God's going to correct us and he's going to help us. The Ted Tripp, again, from Shepherding a Child's Heart, says that the parent who disciplines shows that he loves his child. Um, he's not an uninterested party. He's not ambivalent. He is engaged and involved. His commitment runs deep, deep enough to invest himself in careful discipline. So, you know, God's not going to neglect his kids, nor is he going to indulge his kids. He's, he's going to instruct us and he's going to correct us, sometimes even painfully. Proverbs 13, um, verse 1. I think a lot of you have probably heard before, or maybe you've heard it and you're going, what is that about? Proverbs 13, 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Obviously, we're talking about the discipline of correction now, like the rod. Spankings can be very, very lovingly administered. They can also be abusively administered. But not all spankings are abusive. We don't have time to go into how do you do it in a loving, restorative way, but what God is saying is that's a good thing. 
And Ted Tripp again um, is saying, when disobedience is met with painful consequences, they learn that God has built the principle of sowing and reaping into their world. There's a doctor, uh, famous doctor Paul Brand, who did incredible research with lepers, people with Hansen's disease. And what he realized is that the reason why lepers, you know, were losing digits and losing their eyesight, uh, they couldn't feel the irritant in their eye because, you know, they lost that sense of feeling. Their nerve endings were deadened. They couldn't feel the splinter in their finger that caused infection, and then because of the infection, they would, you know, lose the digit or something. They couldn't feel what they had stepped on, and, you know, so do you get it? Like, the nerve endings... They teach us the stove's hot. Take your hand away from that hot stove. That's a good thing. And it can be redemptive. It's not good to leave your hand on that stove. And there's, there's a proper place, there's a proper place for God to use even redemptive pain in our lives to teach us that's not good. Tear away from that. So how are we shaped uh, by God's loving discipline? Verse 10 says that, our earthly parents disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. So we're being shaped uh, through God's loving discipline to become holy. Uh, we're, we're being shaped by His good discipline. Uh, this is the, the family likeness, right? He wants to make us more and more like Him. And the $10 word for this is sanctification. You've heard that probably in church before. Uh, God is making us holy. That's the root word for sanctified. It's holy. First uh, Peter says that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh, God is saying that we're his obedient children, we're his children, we're his children through adoption. He's adopted us as his sons and his daughters, and he's committed to putting in us the family likeness, which is holiness. Uh, and, and when you think of holiness, I think a lot of us make that connotation to, oh, well, that has something to do with God's law, and that's right. And it's, and it's weird sometimes how we think of the law. Um, it's, I don't think it's uncommon for Christians to kind of get this assumption that the law is just well, I know I'm supposed to obey it. Um, it has something to do with making God happy if I do that. I'm not really sure how that works. And, uh, and I don't really know where it comes from. But hey, I'll just do it anyway. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, you know, do not lie, etc. But where, does, where do those laws come from? I, I will tell you where they don't come from. They don't just come from some... Um, you know, a brainstorming session where people kind of get together and they try to figure out, well, what's going to be good for society? Um, do you remember Schoolhouse Rock? And I'm just a bill. I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill, and, you, and, you, and you've got that rolled up piece of parchment, and the little kid's talking to the bill, and the bill's singing, you know, oh, I hope I pray that I will, and someday I'll be, be, a, be a, however that goes. And it goes through the whole process of people having an idea, and then they want that to become a, a bill, and then the bill's got to go before the House, and it's got to go before the Senate, and then the President's got to sign off on it, and so on. And, uh, and, and it's this long process of just somebody gets an idea, and there's got to be this common consent, and everybody says, yeah, that's how, that should be a law. And then we, again, sort of think or assume without maybe even really reflecting on it, maybe that's how God's law works. All the things that we read, all the thou shalt 
and all the shout nots in Scripture are just sort of common consent. These sound like good ideas. Let's make them into laws. That's not where the law comes from. We should not murder because God is life. We should not commit adultery because God is faithful. We should not steal from people because God is generous. We should not lie to people because God is truth. The law is a reflection of his character. And so to, to take on the family resemblance, to take on the family likeness, we, we take on the law. Not because it's arbitrary, not because it's rules and ways that we check boxes and make God like us better, because it's just how we reflect our Father in heaven. It happens in every family. Uh, a child is born into a family, a child is adopted into a family, and the child takes on the family likeness. You know, um, when you meet somebody who's kind and generous, chances are he or she has fairly kind and generous parents. Those were values instilled in that, that child. You know, um, we've got, back in the day, you used to call a family, uh, and there was one phone number for the whole household, and you never really knew who was going to pick up the phone, but you, you, you called our phone number. It used to be 943-4718. Um, um, <laughs> I had to remember it for a second. And you can call them. You didn't know if I was going to pick up or Kathy or Sarah or Michael or Rachel or Lydia. Um, but haven't, maybe some of you remember calling somebody's home and, and somebody would pick up and you thought you were talking to the mom or the dad, but it was the son or the daughter. And they go, oh, well, let me get mom or let me get dad. You sound just like your mom. You sound just like your dad because you've taken on the family likeness, even the intonations, like even the speech patterns, even the vocabulary. Have, have, we, have we taken on the speech pattern, you know, of our heavenly father? Even just the like what gets you excited? What gets, you, what gets your motor running? Are, are the things that, that give us joy and the things that give us like passion, are they the things that, that um, our Heavenly Father enjoys? The th are they things that our, our elder brother in heaven, the things that get him excited? Um, Kathy's parents both went to OSU and, um, and yesterday we were watching Ohio State lose to Michigan. But we're still OSU fans. I, I have no idea why, but we just do because it's a family thing. And do you get it? Like we are taking on the family likeness of holiness because that's what God is. And that's how our Heavenly Father is. And we want to remind the world of what He is like. Um, verse 10 reminded us of something else. Our, our earthly parents, they did the best they could for the most part, right? Um, as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good. So we know that he's disciplining us to make us holy, and we can trust that his discipline is good at all times. All of us had earthly parents who made mistakes, and, and, and all of us who are earthly parents make mistakes. I am limited as a father because I have... Um, I, have, I have boundaries on my, my wisdom. I, I have limits to my energy. And there's things that I wish I could do for my kids. I wish I could help with that. I wish I could, you know, assist with that. But I can't. I'm constrained by my limits. Um, and, you know, there's also just when I'm selfish. And I'd just rather not. I'd, I'd rather you know, not help. I'd rather not do, do X, Y, or Z for my kid. And there's just places where I'm just downright sinful. 
and my pride gets in the way, and my anger gets in the way, and I, and I sin against my kids. And do you know that God never does any of that? He's not constrained by any finiteness in his parenting. And he's, he never is bound by selfishness. He never has to apologize for losing his temper. He never, because he, he never loses his temper. Uh, because he never sins against us. And therefore, we know that all of his efforts to discipline us are good. He never falls short in his parenting. This is why Paul can say something as audacious as Romans 8, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, right? So you got all that family language, all that taking on the family likeness and the assurance that God in his infinite wisdom and with his pure goodness will arrange every act of discipline for our benefit, for our blessing. He's not like our earthly parents. God's accomplishing his good plan in our lives, even coordinating bad things, right? So don't, don't, don't listen to Romans 8 and think, well, then everything that happens in my life is good. No, <laughs> that's not true. But everything in our life can be used for good, according to sort of God's divine alchemy, turning bad things into good things, because he is superimposing through, through his ways, through his plan, to turn even evil things around and, and redeem them and make them good. This makes us grateful for God's loving discipline. Like, um, I, I guess what I'm talking about here is that our trials aren't random. And the pain that we experience isn't, isn't, um, isn't wasted. All the, all the suffering and, and the hardships and the, and the things that we can put into this category of discipline, right? Just the, the painful things that we that we experience, are we just sort of enduring these as we wait for glory? Or is there a purpose on earth for what we're going through? What if there, was, what if, what if there really was intent, good intent, for the pain that we suffer? And if we knew that our all-wise, all-good, all-powerful Father in heaven was working these things out, for good, right? I, I think Psalm 56 is helpful for us to just listen to, to this experience of, of pain, of trial, of suffering. Um, the, the psalmist says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me, and my enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And this sounds like somebody who's pretty fluent in the language of suffering. And nonetheless, he says, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And then he goes on to say something really remarkable. You have kept count of my tossings. What does that mean? The sleepless nights. You can't rest. You're in pain. You can't rest. You're, you're, you're in anxiety. You can't rest. You're, you're in fear. You can't rest. Those tossings. He has kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. 
Are they not in your books? God bottles our tears. He keeps count of our tossings. They're they're valuable to him. And what that tells us is that he doesn't waste our tears. He doesn't waste our tossings. They're not ancillary. They're, They're valuable. And and what would that look like for us if God's not going to waste our tears? I don't want to waste my tears either. I don't want you to waste your tears either. There's purpose in them. And I think it's it's our job to believe that our Heavenly Father is going to work these things for our good and that He's not checked out, he, he, he's, he's not indifferent to the pain that we're enduring. And, and so if our Heavenly Father is attentive to these things, and if He's not just going to dump our bottled tears out on the ground, then that means that He is spending them on something valuable. If He's asking us uh, to, to, to pay a painful price, doesn't it make sense that He would have something valuable for us in exchange. My first instinct, when I'm suffering, when I'm in pain, I'm running for the exit. I'm looking for what's going to comfort me like I'm looking for the third helping of stuffing Thursday, right? I just want whatever's going to make me feel good. And I don't want to experience pain. There's a loving way to care for ourselves instead of just running for the exit to to maybe hit the pause button in the middle of pain and start asking ourselves some questions that have to do with, is there a gift here? Is there goodness here? Is there something that God wants to teach me that I can only learn through tears? Um, I'll throw a few questions at you. You can try these on for size. Maybe you'll find these helpful. One thing to ask ourselves is how have I contributed to the pain I'm feeling? And, and really, um, this is just acknowledging my, my part in the pain. Not, all right, so not all suffering is, is our fault, but certainly there are times when I've just crashed through the guardrails and I'm in the weeds because I'm in the weeds. And I'm suffering because I did this to myself. And, and so I need, in that moment, to just learn to receive the gift of honesty and repentance and turn back to Jesus and let him lead me out of the weeds and back onto the path of life. That's a gift. It's the gift of pain that shows me, ouch, that stove is hot. This is going to be bad for me if I keep my hand here. But at the same time, can I, can I just put an asterisk on that question? Not all your pain is your fault. It's not all my fault. It wasn't all Job's fault. And it certainly wasn't all Jesus' fault. So sometimes what we need to be asking is, what do I need to turn from uh, in this painful experience? Like, okay, if we've played a part, we can repent. But maybe there's times when we didn't play a part, but now there's this painful encounter, this painful relationship, whatever, and then I am tempted to react in painful ways 
because I'm being defensive, because I get angry, because I'm indifferent or I lack compassion or whatever. And I can turn from those things and that's a gift too. I'm taking on the Father's likeness. He is not indifferent. He he does not lack compassion. And he wants to grow those things in me and in you. And frequently that happens in painful encounters. We can be asking ourselves, how can I grow through this painful mess? Like pain results frequently from humans acting inhumanely. And no one learns how to grow in in compassion or kindness or peace or patience or forgiveness. We don't grow in those things. We don't receive those gifts by being surrounded 24-7 by wonderful people. Do you? Where do we learn compassion? Where do we learn patience? Where do we learn love, real love? Not by being around people who are so lovely. We learn how to love by learning and brushing up against people who are hard to love. God doesn't love us in theory. He doesn't love his enemies in theory. He loves real enemies. He loved us when we were his enemies so much so that he gave his son. And he's going to put us in proximity with people that are hard to love, negative relationships. And I can't give you, you know, the download on everything you need to know about how to love a person who's hard to love, but you need to know that sometimes that's just a gift to grow our love muscles and to become more like the one who loved us. Last question to be asking ourselves. So, so I'm in th- this mess that, that I'm seeing here is a painful mess. How can I help? How, ca- how can I be the gift to somebody, you know, who's in pain? And a lot of times, look, that's going to come from helping get them and extricate them out of that pain. That's going to be a good thing. But just before we, we hit, go into fourth gear by trying to solve the problem and rescue everybody, sometimes people need solutions. Absolutely. But a lot of times people just need your presence. They just need you to be present in their pain. And and we get the gift of being Christ-like who came to be among us in our pain, and they get the gift of seeing Christ through us being with them. Um, Look, there's lots of ways we can go at this, but if God's asking us to pay the price of tears, let's not waste that gift. Let's not run for the exit too quickly. And pause for just a second and find what's good about this. Where can I grow in grace? Where can I help people see Jesus in the midst of this messy, uh, painful experience that everybody's going through? And and instead of instinctively running away from all of this stuff, maybe learn to, to lean in and to accept the fact that I don't always know what's gonna bring blessing. I don't always know what's good for me. Sometimes the Lord has things that look like, that's sketchy. That looks like it's going to hurt. And I'm running from that. And then all the while, the Lord's got really good things in store for me. We we, we need help. We, We need the Holy Spirit to teach us sometimes what's good and what's bad, what's a blessing and what's a curse. Because we, we're finite, right? There was a time, this was like 100 years ago, and we all go, oh, back then. But we're doing the same thing now. We're just, we'll learn 100 years from now the things that we were doing today that were ridiculous. Like, there was a time when people thought radioactivity was healthy for you. 
And people snuggled under radioactive blankets to get help from their rheumatism. There was a time when women put on radioactive makeup because they thought it had anti-aging properties. And people were drinking radioactive water because, oh, well, you know, in the, in the healing springs, you know, that have whatever the, 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 the minerals in them, that some of which were radioactive, you know, let's drink that. What could be better? So refreshing. I had a friend, a uh, neighbor, a few, this was years ago, and he, we, I was saying, hey, and he says, hey, good news, I got the blessing. I was like, oh, this sounds good, tell me more. Yeah, I got this promotion, I'm in charge of three sites now, and one's in this city, and the other's in this city, and the other one's here, and you know, I, I, gotta, you know, I gotta do some traveling. Six months later, I'm, how's, the, how's the new job, how's the blessing going? He'd been home like a total of maybe six weeks in the past six months. Sometimes the things that we think are really good, they're going to bless me. Eh. Sometimes the things that we think are really hard, I want to run from that. God's saying, no, come on, lean in. There's a parable of this ancient farmer. And one horse, you know, this, they depended on this animal, do the plowing, you know, uh, the lifting and carrying stuff around the farm, like this is really their livelihood. And the horse ran away. Horse runs off, all the neighbors come together. Oh, this is awful. This is terrible. What are you going to do? And this, this is, we're, we're so sorry for you. This is terrible, right? The farmer said, maybe. <laughs> what do you mean, maybe? A few days later, the horse comes back. The horse comes back, and he's got six of his closest friends that he met out in the wild horse herd, you know, off in the fields or whatever. I don't know, really, you know, extroverted horse or something. Uh, and all these other horses come, and because the horse was missing the apples and missing the carrots that the farmer would give the horse, I know where to get those goodies, and he comes back into the crowd with the other six wild horses. And so now the, the farmer's got seven horses, and everybody comes around, wow, this is great. We're so happy for you. What a blessing, right? And he says, well, maybe. What do you mean, maybe? So, you know, now we got to do something with these wild horses. The only son starts breaking the wild horses, trying to train them, trying to tame them. Gets on one they thought was pretty tame. Horse bucks up, rears back. Only son is toppling back, breaks his arm. He's out for the rest of the harvest season. Now what? He doesn't have his key labor. Everybody comes out, oh, this is terrible. We're so sorry. And the farmer says, well, maybe. A week later, government officials from in town come and they've got this, the conscription officer with them. We're, we're enlisting all able-bodied men we need to go fight on the front lines. My son's got a broken arm. Oh, all right, we can't use him. And then they can move on to the next house. And everybody comes around, this is great. I'm so, we're so happy, but this is wonderful, right? Maybe. And it just goes on and on. Look, we don't know. We don't know. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to pray and ask God to give us wisdom. Like I'm looking at all this pain and all this difficulty in my life and it just seems awful and I can't see how God's at work, but help me trust you. Help me believe you're my good Heavenly Father. You're working these things for good. You've got gifts for me in this pain because you have my tears in your bottle. And if you need help believing this, 
Look to your older brother. He's hanging on a cross. People are mocking him and deriding him, and the disciples are scattering, and, and everybody's going, there's nothing good about this. How can anything positive come from this? There's no possible gift in an innocent man's crucifixion. Maybe. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus who was crucified for our sins, who provided atonement for us, who took our sins away, who, who made us your adopted sons and daughters, who rose from the dead to make us new creations and to bring us into your family, who is the evidence that if you would not spare him, how will you not also, along with him, graciously, generously give us all things? And so, Lord, we just confess our finiteness. We confess even our foolishness believing some things are good when they're bad and, and failing to recognize some of the hard, painful things you bring into our lives are really actually for our good. Help us, we pray. We just come to you as, as finite sons and daughters and we want to receive the love of our Heavenly Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.